everyone welcome to this episode of free for all i am your host big john and uh conspicuous by his absence is my usual co-host libertarian radio legend bob zadek who is taking some well-deserved time off uh hopefully our audience can stomach my handling the hosting duties this week uh and hopefully the quality will not drop off uh too much i'm joined today by two awesome guests who are here to discuss issues of importance to libertarians in the United States and also touch on the announced candidates running for POTUS nominees of the Libertarian Party. So to that end, let me introduce my first guest on my screen. Uh, he is Mr. Adrian Malagon, who is the chair of both the California Libertarian Party and the California Mises Caucus of the LP. He is also the Region 4 representative for the Libertarian Party uh, Committee. Region 4 is basically California, right, Adrian? That is correct. We are fully autonomous here. Excellent. So basically, if you're looking for one of the top dogs of the Libertarian Party in Cali, go go talk to Adrian. He seems to be the one, <laughs> the one who's at the top of the pyramid there. So Adrian, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Great, great to have you. Uh, also joining us uh, is Joshua Reed Eckel, who is a board member of the Classical Liberal Caucus, uh, and that can be found at lpclc.org. And uh, Josh is uh, Joshua, rather, is also you can find him. He's very prolific on Twitter, folks. Uh, you can find his handle on it'll be on the screen and everything. Uh, Joshua, how are you doing today? I'm good, John. Thanks for having me. Always, always good to have uh, some folks who are willing to discuss matters of liberty in an open and um, an honest way, I feel. Uh, yeah, I think it's also exciting to have another state chair because I, I was the former state chair of Tennessee and I know how difficult and challenging that job can be. It also gives you a lot of insight into <laughs> yes. the minds of a libertarian. So I'm actually really looking forward to the conversation. Cool. Yeah, it really cool. does. No, I, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> a lot of people congratulated me uh, and I always said uh, the, the, the term, it's, it's congratulations. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's the term That's the term I've heard and I, I love it very much. It is perfect. It's probably Congrats. one of the hardest jobs I've ever had and one of the most expensive jobs I've ever had as well, which, um, so yes, I understand the sentiment completely, man. Godspeed. Congratulations, Adrian. I think that's entering the lexicon. That's like right next to frenemy as far as I'm concerned. That's, that's fantastic. Okay. So we're going to start off the show by identifying issues of importance, uh, to libertarian, the rank and file, the people in this country both those who are members of the Libertarian Party and those who identify as Libertarian. Uh, and I'm drawing this from three recent polls conducted by three uh, separate organizations, uh, the, the Pew folks in 2020, the Trafalgar folks in 2021, and the Cato Institute in 2022. Now, I will say that since these polls were taken before uh, the Ukraine situation really uh, blew up, I'm going to throw in Ukraine uh and uh, foreign interventionism at the top of the list of issues. But also, uh, and we're putting these up on the screen, we also have the size and scope of government as being the most uh, important issue to libertarians, the second being the economy slash economic freedom, uh, individual and civil liberty, 
taxes and immigration. Those would be like the top five or so. So let's start off on Ukraine. Obviously, we're all concerned about the situation in Ukraine. uh, And for the Libertarian Party, typically uh, the LP plank, when it comes to international affairs, the official plank of the LP is American foreign policy should recognize peace with all nations and tackling alliances with none. That seems to encapsulate it all, right, as far as uh, just a general position. Adrian, what do you feel is the proper libertarian uh, response of the LP and of libertarians in general to the situation in Ukraine? I, I mean, it's that. It's I think the platform outlines it perfectly. It's We, we shouldn't have any sort of involvement whatsoever in, in any sort of foreign conflict. I mean, what is foreign aid, right? It is taking money from poor people in rich countries and giving it to rich people in poor countries. Uh, while it is unfortunate for the Ukrainian people who are kind of caught in the middle of this, and it's who goes to war. It's not people, right. it's governments. And uh, these are issues that they need to that they need to sort out. It's really unfortunate. But I, I mean, funding this and having any sort of part of this is kind of a non-starter for me. And I think that's what the libertarian position encapsulates within the platform. And this is kind of the American empire's own doing. I mean, NATO shouldn't even exist anymore. It was there as a stronghold against the Soviet Union. It's our um, our continued expansion of NATO that has provoked this sort of that that's provoked this conflict as a whole and i mean it, it should have already been abolished and the reason that we continue to aid nato and continue to push nato further and further to the east and bring it up to russia's doorstep with you know the incorporation of ukraine is because uh it's i mean what is nato it's the european wing of the american empire so it's it's really important for us by us i mean you know, America, I guess, not me. There's no we here, I guess. But this is one of those things that is pretty cut and dry for me. We shouldn't be funding it. We shouldn't be aiding it. Uh, They it's really unfortunate. And I wish them all the best. uh, But uh, this is not our fight. Joshua. Yeah, I agree with a good chunk of what Adrian said, specifically as it relates to the U.S.'s involvement. And that's something that CLC has said many, many times is, you know, we shouldn't be uh, you know, writing a blank check to the Ukrainian government, right? This is not something that I think is an appropriate use of taxpayer dollars, especially if it's open-ended and it, in the sense that we're just simply going to kind of fund them to what degree? Where's the end? You know, what are the restrictions or the limitations? So I think that's a big issue, and CLC um, has talked about that a lot, you know, kind of standing up against that, um, you know, using U.S. taxpayer dollars for foreign aid. Um, you know, I, I think the the main thing, uh, and we'll probably get into this later when we start really digging into the debate between right. the candidates, because I thought there was some interesting commentary on this. I think um, Chase Oliver actually said something that I, I resonates a lot with me, and that was, you know, we should impose imperialism wherever it exists. So I think that it's important for libertarians, uh, mostly from a rhetorical standpoint, to really call out in a very clear and concise terms, uh, you know, imperialism. So, you know, I, I'm sure Adrian and, and you, John, when uh, the U.S. initially went to, to war in Afghanistan and in Iraq, were very vocally against that. I mean, a lot of people, it was their radicalization moment. It was like the thing that made them libertarian. And for me, it was definitely something, um, you know, watching the Ron Paul uh, campaigns of 2008, 2012, because I was 18 at the time when those, those campaigns were happening. Uh, the war and uh, U.S. imperialism globally was like the thing that made me realize how corrupt Americans' global empire can be and like the evils and the harms that it causes. Um, but I don't think that imperialism is something that's unique. Uh, you know, it's like an American phenomenon. It's something that can happen anywhere. And so I think that one of the things that libertarians stand against first and foremost is coercion and aggression. 
And so I think that as a as a as a organization, as a party, as an individual, it's important to say to really speak out against that. Um, and so where I might disagree with Adrian on this a little bit is where the blame lies. Um, you know. Uh, Russia's invaded 12, 15 of their neighbors going back to the 30s and the 40s. They've, you know, it's been pretty open and clear that their intention is to, or at least Putin's intention is to rebuild the old Russian empire. And so while we could argue about where NATO expansion, uh, you know, maybe played a role in that, I I think that it's important that we first and foremost put the blame on uh, Putin and Russia, generally speaking, for taking the initiative and the act of aggression to kind of violate the sovereignty of an independent people. And so I think that might be where the disagreement lies. And honestly, uh, I think that that was also, I don't know if you guys picked up on this, but that seemed to be one of the only real things that divided the, the major candidates in the debates. It was Ukraine, maybe some of their competence, maybe immigration came up too. But that, that in and of itself, I think, is really where a lot of the debate lies in the movement right now. Yeah. And let me ask you this, that given that libertarians foundationally are anti-coercion, anti-aggression, do you think it's beyond the expectation of libertarians to enter into, like in terms of nations, yeah. enter into agreements of either protection, cooperation, almost like a pay for protection scheme, right? Like, is it is it consistent with a libertarian position to say, all right, we're not going to go out there for imperialistic purposes. We're not going to go out there to be the world police. Yeah. Uh, however... If Ukraine comes to us and says, hey, we've got these natural resources or we have something of value to the U.S., would you be willing to trade arms for this thing or just cash? The foreign aid angle of it, obviously, I think libertarians are staunchly against uh, the blank check, definitely against. How do you guys feel about that, though? If Ukraine were to come to us or any nation and say, look, you know, we're tiny, we can't stand up to the aggression of, in this case, Russia, uh, how about we buy some tanks off you guys? Would you would you guys feel that's a consistent uh, within the libertarian paradigm to say, yeah, we could do that. If we're not getting involved in the war, but if they the same way if Russia came to us and said, hey, we want to buy X from you, is is that something like could we be arms dealers in some uh, high level sense and still be libertarian? Adrian, you want to take Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I'd, I'd be inclined to to think that that wouldn't be okay. I mean, that's still involvement in some level. You know, Joshua made a mention of this. You know, this is where the disagreement is probably going to be, whether it's Putin's fault. And, you know, I, I think that everyone shares some blame here. But at the end of the day, NATO is... <clears throat> It's supposed to be a defensive wing, right? It was supposed to be defending the European powers or countries against this massive, uh, you know, what was the Soviet Union, now Russia, excuse me, but uh, they're on the defensive until they're not, you know, they're very, they're very aggressive in Afghanistan, Syria, Libya. So setting that kind of precedent where we're trading arms with whoever kind of gives them because then what happens when the conflict is over? They have this and what's stopping them from doing something with that. Now we're beholden to that. And who really benefits from, I mean, who's going to see the money, right? So if America were to sell tanks to either Russia or any sort of arms, you know, guns, whatever, we can't have guns, but it's funny that we'll give them X amount of guns, whatever. I'm a Californian, so I'm a little sour about that in particular, (laughs) but, and in the Bay Area of all places, but, (laughs) But it's one of those things where, I, I mean, where, where does it really end? Where is the money going to go? So if we sell X amount of arms or tanks or fighters to X country, 
who's going to get that money. It's not like we're going to get a tax refund for that. It's not like the the government is going to be so uh, so generous and decide that, oh, well, this is, you know, you all help pay for these tanks and you all help pay for whatever. So you're going to get a little bit of a cut. Uh, but so just on principle, I think it's wrong. And there's really no incentive for us to do that outside of look at what we've done to aid in this conflict. And then people are going to come running and saying, well, what are you willing to sell us for the next one? Uh, and it, it's, it really just sets a bad precedent. I think it's in poor taste all the way around. I really don't think that that would be the libertarian solution. Joshua? Yeah, I so I mean, I, I see it, the trading between, say, um, American uh, defense contractors in other countries. I don't see necessarily the role of the government to kind of come in there and, uh, uh, say, force uh, those organizations to say maybe not take on contracts. I mean, I guess there could be a national security argument to say we shouldn't have American foreign com country, uh, foreign, uh, like defense contractors providing weapons to our enemies. So, I mean, right. maybe there could be an argument there. But uh, I don't necessarily think there's anything wrong with the idea of, um, say, America, you know, through trade and exchange, providing weapons to our allies. Um, I think that that actually is, you know, strengthens our position in the world and kind of um, it, it actually, in a lot of ways, is a deterrent to war. I mean, if we, say, make sure that Canada on our northern border has a strong defense, it's, it's a state, it makes everyone in the United States right. safer because, we, you know, if we have a domestic invasion, we know we can lead into our allies to defend us. And I think that same principle applies to a lot of countries in Western Europe and just people that are generally allies with us. I don't think you could write a blank check, though, and say it's always good or it's always bad. I think it right. really matters, like, which comp who's in control of the countries, what are we trading with them? Like exactly what are we giving them? So I think there's there's all those nuances that would have to it would be difficult to unpack in a broad overarching right. statement. Um, you know, I don't I, I feel like you may be asked about the defensive alliances. And I do think that the libertarian platform is pretty straightforward on the defensive alliances thing. One of the things that I take heat on Twitter about all the time is I there are very few things that I personally disagree with the libertarian platform on. But and this is not the CLC's position. The CLC's position is that the U.S. should withdraw from NATO. Uh, but one of the things that I think you, you alluded to at the beginning was uh, I've kind of got into some spats. I think with Dave Smith at one point we did an episode talking about NATO. I personally uh, don't think that the concept of defensive alliances are in antithetical to libertarian philosophy. I actually think if you're going to talk about um, a libertarian foreign policy uh, it would require you to have some sort of defensive alliances and agreements right. with those allies that um, that are ours. But to Adrian's point, there have been instances, like during uh, you know the war in Iraq, uh, and also in several conflicts in the '90s in Europe, where NATO got involved in conflicts that probably shouldn't have gone. A lot of this was related to Bill Clinton using NATO in a way that it had never historically been used for. Um, but and those are, those are things that I think are completely inappropriate. But um, one of the things that I think is worth mentioning, at least in this context, before we move on to the next one, mm -hmm. is you know NATO by its very nature cannot pull its members into a war that it wouldn't otherwise have gotten into. NATO by its very nature is inherently defensive. So, for example, I mean if we talk about those conflicts that we disagree with, like uh, I think in Serbia, and there are other conflicts like again after 9/11, but that, that was an, that was like the only instance of Article Five. Uh, those were conflicts that were ongoing. Uh, by the major powers at the time. And so NATO's involvement wasn't that NATO was spearheading those things. It was that there were NATO resources on the ground involved in those conflicts, which were, which were, I agree were absolutely inappropriate and mm -hmm. probably should never have happened. So, the, the, But inherently, the Article 5 nature of NATO requires all the members to agree to enter into declaring Article 5. And so it can't inherently 
pull a member into conflict that it doesn't want to be. Because so, as, as soon as somebody votes and it's not unanimous, it's not Article yeah. 5, right? So right. I think that, again, NATO and what they've done historically is, uh, is absolutely, to Adria's point, could be problematic. But the nature of defensive alliances generally, I don't think are antithetical to libertarian philosophy. But that's not the platform. And I think we're here to talk about the platform. The platform is well, pretty you know, And And yeah. actually, I mean, to Joshua's point, if I mean, I, I, I mean, if it were strictly a defensive unit, that would be fine. But oftentimes, I mean, that's just really not the case. I mean, we're trusting government to regulate itself at that point in these states to have this sort of agreement where they're only going to defend X, Y or Z. But that's never I mean, that's seldom the case. When has the government ever kept its word, at least not in my lifetime? Uh, so I, I just don't anticipate that being a a way in which we could productively move forward if we're trying to see peace in our lifetime. Right. And it's interesting to me because, um, and I use these terms loosely because from when I became politically aware to now, the terms for the different political philosophies and factions in the U S have turned one, you know, like 180, right? Yeah. So, um, for example, the conservatives now, my conservative friends might argue like, hey, without a strong U.S. presence, uh, you libertarians who are for closing down the bases, bringing all the troops home, uh, getting out of NATO, getting out of all these alliances, you're inherently dooming the U.S. to be eventually swallowed up by its enemies, uh, that, that you'll have this overwhelming, whether it's, uh, whether it's the Islamic State, whether it's uh, the... Uh, uh, say an alliance of uh, the BRICS or whatever, yeah. you know, you're inviting this, that you need this U.S. presence that, you know, and you'll hear from I immigrants from uh, third world or dictatorial nations who came here who will be like, I've lived through this, man. Like, if you don't nip these things in the bud, uh, what what you have is, is, is uh, fascism, which have is authoritarianism run amok. Um, how do we as libertarians respond to that? I mean, I understand, and I'm in full agreement with you guys, but to if we're talking about the libertarian party growing and appealing to people outside of like the 15 to 20% of the U.S. that identifies as libertarian, how do you address this real issue? Because like, for example, I would be an anarchist if everybody else in the world were an anarchist, right? Like if everybody was an anarchist, that would be cool with me. We each mind our own business. We only deal with the people we want to deal with. But the reality is if I'm, if I'm an if I'm an anarchist, I'm at the mercy, for the most part, of any bully that decides to to take my stuff, to to steal my property, to invade my nation, et cetera, et cetera. How do libertarians address that in the absence of the U.S. acting as world police? And even if we say, hey, we're not interventionalist, we're going to have a defensive army, and et cetera, et cetera, how do we feel about that? How do you challenge that assertion? Like, how do we deal when Ukraine becomes you know, bleeds into Afghanistan, bleeds into Europe. And eventually the next thing you know, there's, there's bombers flying over the U S supposedly. Adrian, are you okay if I address that? Yeah, go quick? please. Okay. I, I want to say just a quick anecdote because I, uh, I, I studied abroad in the UK when I was in college. And one of the more interesting things to me, which I don't think many Americans think about this, but it was a very interesting experience for me. I was talking to somebody in a bar, actually, because I was 18. I was 19. Mm -hmm. You could drink it at the time. <laughs> in the UK, I was 18. It was the drinking age. And uh, they were talking to me about how, yeah, there was a there's an American base right by my house. And I went in there and it's like a little mini America and they've got American food and all this stuff. And I thought how odd it was for somebody in a foreign country to say, I have your country's military base in my backyard. 
it, 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 you know, affected me in a weird way. It kind of made me realize that, that, that global influence that we have. I think that, you know, we have to operate as a, as a country. Um, we have to be real and understand like the threats. Um, and I think the Libertarian Party could do better at kind of looking at their foreign policy in a way that's realistic. Um, but I do think that we, you know, we should pull out from many places in the world and because it's a massive cost to us. And, or, uh, you know, we should at the very minimum seek to offset that cost. If we're subsidizing, say, the defense of other countries, they should at least pay for some of that. But I would say overall, a defensive alliances could theoretically fit and uh, solve some of those problems. Because right. if you're talking about an environment where America has a strong defensive presence, um, and you also have the commitment to say, hey, look, if you guys get attacked, we're going to have your back. Uh, I think that you could have a foreign policy, like a fusion of kind of foreign policy solutions there that can kind of still, you know, create that defensive environment that we're looking for. But I think there are many countries that don't want us there. And in those cases, that's an, that's explicitly clear to me. Like there's no reality in which we should be occupying a country right. that doesn't want us there. Uh, so at the very minimum, uh, the first place we should start, if you, you know, say libertarian POTUS, is... Whole, getting the hell out of countries that don't want us there. Um, so I, I don't know. I think it's, again, it goes back to what we talked about a second ago with the nuances between the real world and the philosophy, uh, because some countries do have it clearly said, we want you guys to help us out. We, we, we're happy with that. The real question is, should the American taxpayer cover that? And I think where Adrian's going to go with this is that, we, you know, that's a cost to the taxpayer. So if we're going to be covering that you know, the, ta the American taxpayer probably shouldn't be covering this, the, the uh, the defense of some African country thousands of miles away. Adrian? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think it's, I, we should just withdraw. Obviously, if they don't want us there, we should definitely withdraw those military bases and, and get out. But even if they do want us there, I mean, we have to look. We're not seen as a defensive uh, presence. We're the aggressor oftentimes. Mm -hmm. And like, we're not the only, I mean, we are the biggest empire that's ever existed in the history of man. So we're seen as a threat. This is This is kind of like the, it's like missiles in Cuba all over again, right? Like we wouldn't stand for that. We wouldn't stand some other country if Mexico decided that they wanted that. I, I don't know if Mexico decided to allow some other country to install a military base there, you know, just in case the U.S. ever decides to invade Mexico, which, you know, given some GOP candidates positions about going in and taking out the cartel and whatever is, is more likely than anything. Right. Um, that's, that's obviously, we wouldn't stand for that. We would consider that an act of aggression and other people see that the same way because we are usually the aggressors. And then we have, you know, policy on one hand where the government is officially saying whatever, and then the CIA is doing something else. So we're dealing on both sides. So we're really never looking out for X country's best interest, especially in Latin America. I mean, that's a whole other bag, but we're looking out for America's best interest. I always like to remind people when when POTUS is out there or Secretary of State or whatever is talking about, uh, we're doing this in our best interest and we're doing this. And then, you know, the immediate knee jerk reaction from whatever party isn't in power is like, there's no, it's not in our best interest. And I say, no, 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 it is in our, when they say our, they're not lying. They mean our as in them, as in the state, it is in their best interest to do X, Y, or Z. So they're actually, it's one of those moments of truth that if you look past the, the the hyperbolic nature of whatever they're saying, is it, they are being truthful, right? So it, it's just one of those things where I, I don't think this is, this is probably one of the few places where the the philosophy, I would disagree, and I don't wanna speak for Joshua unless I misunderstood, but this, is, this might be one of the places where the reality and the philosophy can actually coexist. This isn't just some sort of hypothetical thing. Mm. If we were to mind our own business 
and focus on our defense and on everybody else's defense. I mean, we're not going to get invaded. Uh, the last time that that was even thought of to my, as far as I remember, was World War II. And that was the Japanese considering invading California. And Emperor Hirohito's right-hand man said, well, let's take a step back. You know, Americans have guns. That's not going to go well for us. I mean, that's back then we did have guns. Uh, that's not going to go well for us. So they had to do a, a flyby, right? And hence Pearl Harbor. So yeah. I, I'm not really concerned with anyone coming in. I mean, it's we barely have the money and the ability. Actually, we don't. We don't have the money or the ability to really do it. We do it anyway because we just print it and make it happen. Right. right. But uh, other countries, if if the largest empire in the history of the world can't sustain presence all the way around the world and endless quagmires, why would some other country be able to do that here? It just doesn't make sense to me. Mm. Yeah, real That's quick, John, I'd, I'd like to yeah. say something. I agree with a lot of what you said, Adrian. The only thing that I would disagree with, and this is just, I, this is what I've seen in polling, is that the, I don't think the, the global community actually looks at the United States as negatively as sometimes Americans think they do, that we do, especially libertarians. One of the things I hear in the libertarian movement all the time is like everyone hates us and they think we're this world police. And I think when you look at our foreign policy, Adrian's completely correct. I mean, we've been, as a, as a country, the United States it has been an imperialistic invader, aggressor in many different instances. It's been targeted. Uh, it hasn't necessarily, you know, it's been like in the Middle East for obviously, you know, strategic reasons. Mm -hmm. And obviously we talk about the fall of the USSR. There was all those dynamics before that. But overall, the world, I think, does have a positive view of us. I think American libertarians need to think, need to realize that. Like uh, the polling, I think, was that 60 plus percent of the world look at the U.S. as a positive force. Right. Right. And so I think that's an important thing to think about. I think you could still acknowledge that and withdraw, um, you know, make sure you're being strategic in how you uh, have your, uh, you know, how you're uh, doing foreign policy overseas. But it's important to realize that I don't think we're as hated as some people in the United States think on the global stage. Actually, I think a lot of people look to us as a beacon of hope and they look to us as a as in some cases the only thing keeping them from the rise of illiberalism and, and violence in their country and so just understanding that dynamic is important i think especially for the post candidates which i'm sure we're about to get into here. we've done so, a really good job with pr maybe that's that that could be part of the reason but uh well, I, mean, I mean joshua may not be wrong uh, i've never traveled to europe but i know that in certain places in at least mexico and uh, I mean, the only place I've gone to is New Zealand. They do have a positive, uh, outside of Mexico anyway, another country that I visited. Right. They do have a positive outlook of, of Americans. But uh, that's probably, I chalk it more to propaganda and PR than understanding the reality as it affects them, rather than them fully understanding the scope of the situation and right. our history. Yeah, and uh, before we move on, I was going to tag what you said earlier, Adrian, about uh, Emperor Hirohito and one of his generals. Uh, when he did want to, it's it may be apocryphal, but the supposed line was in America there is a gun behind every blade of grass. Base and yeah, yeah. So yeah. Uh, that not, was not in California terrible. anymore, but yeah, not anymore. Yeah, but, right. but, Man, but those, suppose, were, those were somewhat good times. <laughs> yeah, the good the good old days aside <laughs> from that days. world, except for the World War Two, it was great times, right? right. Yeah. Um, all right, so I think we've covered that pretty well. Thank you for your contributions to that, guys. Now moving down the list of issues. At 71%, this was, uh, on average, the most important issue identified by the polls, which was the size and scope of government. Libertarians are constantly complaining about the size and the scope of government, and with good cause. Uh, one of my favorite uh, visualizations of this would have been Milton Friedman when he did Right to Choose, uh, Free to Choose, rather, and uh, he would say, hey, look, this is the size of the Federal Register, which uh, codifies... 
uh, every uh, federal regulation. And when he started out, it was like one volume, like something like this big. And by 1980, it had grown to something like 20 stacks as tall as Milton Friedman, right? So that alone is a visualization, I think a great visualization of saying, this is how much government has grown. Look what they've gotten involved in, right? So let's start with uh, Joshua this time out. Uh, Joshua, is the increase in regulation, is the increase in government pervasiveness, in your opinion, the natural result of of complicated times, advanced technology, uh, uh, further entanglement with, uh, say, foreign nations, or, or is it just the desire of the state to grow as the result of other policies, but just in general, uh, the desire of, of the people to have the nanny state look after them? I don't know. I mean, the vast majority, I think, of these federal regulations, you know, people we couldn't even point to, and a lot of people, and like, it's not going to be touching people's lives. I think there was an anecdote about you know you break something like also seven federal laws a day, and many of these things <laughs> something like that. Forced, yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I actually think it's a only if you're weak, you should be breaking way more than that if you're a liberal. <laughs> right. What are you talking about, man? You got to pump those digits. numbers up, right? <laughs> you got to pump those rookie numbers up, man. <laughs> so, yeah. So I mean, I I think a lot of those laws aren't even enforced, and I think if you talked about it now in the '80s, it was as tall as Milton Friedman. It's probably reaching to the moon now. Oh, sure. It's exponential. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's a consequence of our political system, the f control, of the, the power of special interests. They can use the they often are looking for opportunities to use the government to achieve different outcomes in the market, which I think, you know, has a massive influence on that. I think the complexity of the world is a part of it, but I don't think that is inherently the reason why we have so much regulation. I think we should do uh, like we should sunset things. I think that that would be a massive change that we could have is if you're going to introduce a regulation, it needs to always have a sunset. If it's not renewed, then, you know, you know, it, it needs to, it, you know, it needs to die. Um, and, you know, one of the things I give Trump credit for, too, which he was the one that I think popularized the whole repeal to regulations for every one new regulation you introduce. I think that would be an amazing model if you could find a way to codify that into some sort of process that Congress has to follow. You can't create a new regulation until you repeal two. Um, but, you know, the reason why, John, I couldn't point to, I think there's a lot of different factors, special interests, the complexity of the world, the fact that we don't repeal old laws probably all play a part in that. But it's definitely not a good thing because it stifles innovation, it, it, it chills entrepreneurship, it slows, our, it slows down our rate of growth as a society, and um, in many cases it, it's, uh, it's unnecessary. So, I, you know, I, don't, I, I agree with almost every candidate um, on that one. Adrian? Yeah, I mean, I'm inclined to agree there. Government has never gotten smaller. It's only gotten bigger, not just in my lifetime, but probably since its inception. I mean, that's why we are where we are right now. When we're talking about representative government. I mean, really, I guess we do have representative government insofar as it represents its own self-interest and it, you know, as it relates to corporations and padding their own wallets and expanding their power. So sure, we have representative government in that fashion, but they don't represent me. They don't represent the individual. Uh, how often do constituents go and, you know, whatever happens behind closed doors, they end up, you know, we never know what happens behind closed doors, but we have a pretty good idea when they come out based on what they say. And that's one of the reasons that I'm an anarchist. I mean, I think we need to really limit the size and scope of government and bring it down. And it seems that most of the presidential candidates that we have right now on the ticket are, are looking to do that. I mean, um, I believe all of them are minarchists, if memory serves at the at the very least, which is fine. Um, you know, we can't let the, you know, uh, the perfect be the enemy of the good. I'll, I'll take a minarchist uh, over what we have now any day. But I mean, I think this is why we need to start. And I'm glad that these conversations are starting to happen. And 
another thing that I'll give Trump credit for, uh, I would say for better, we are having these conversations now about national divorce and what would this look like, the, perhaps the balkanization of the United States. I mean, as a Californian, I know for a fact that I've had friends, I've, I've known a lot of people personally that have left the tyrannical state of California for freer states, you know, Florida, whatever. So uh, primarily Florida, Texas, Texas can go either way, you know, within the next few years or whatever. But it's one of those things where we really need to pull back on that scope. And the only way that we can do that is by allowing states to start making their own decisions, talking about national divorce, possible secession, and then, you know, smaller government means that you have more of a direct say that gives you a little bit more representation at your level and then i mean i would like to see it down to the county level but you know we're going to be realistic here and say that the states would be hard enough but once that first domino falls it does make everything else a little bit easier and it, it does seem to me that the candidates are looking to at least entertain that idea i don't remember any of them talking about national divorce specifically but they're trying to reduce the size and scope of government which is always a good thing yeah, and it seems to me like national divorce might be too radical an idea uh, right now. Uh, but I think the ability to be able to say, the, so to your point, Adrian, I'd love to see government. And again, I'm not an anarchist. I am a minarchist. Uh, I do believe in some form of government, but only as a night watchman type of state. So to the extent that if the federal government gets as much of its claws out of uh, daily life, the better. I think your point, though, is, is the perfect example of the way it should be. Californians, sick of the way California uh, runs its business, are fleeing. They're going to Florida. They're going to Texas. They're going to Montana, wherever. Um, it'd be interesting to see if California can still tax them, which from what I hear from my Cali friends is is on the docket there. Uh, I'd love to hear about the constitutionality of that. Like once you escape, can they reach into your pocket in Florida and in Texas? But that's a, that's an issue, but well, but cause you're on parole when you escape, you know, you're, <laughs> right. it's, it's kind of like a parole situation. So uh, like, or yeah. uh, bail bondsman, you're still the property of the court. <laughs> that's right. right. Yeah. So, uh, so it's that type of thing. But to the extent that I, I, I agree with both you guys that in the sense that, uh, if you're an anarchist, I agree. You want to see it brought down to like your neighborhood level, right? Me and my neighbors, like that would be the ultimate, right? We decide what goes on here. We have our own private security force if we feel we need one, et cetera. On a very practical level, I think if we get back to the state level, and interestingly enough, the only time the regulations actually, uh, federal regulations actually decreased in my lifetime, and I'm pushing 60, uh, was uh, under the Reagan administration. It actually, like, if you graphed these regulations, they actually dipped uh, by the second, by the middle of the second term, and then, of course, they shot up again. Uh, however, I think an unappreciated part of this, and maybe Joshua touched on it, is the rep the repetitive nature of certain laws. Uh, for example, hate crime laws, hate speech, anything with hate in front of it, is typically a duplicative or a triple law, meaning. Uh, we have laws against murder. Uh, hate crime on top of murder is a political adjective. It's not uh, something that needs to be codified in terms of penal law, uh, you know, because it's still murder, right? Murder committed under the utterance or the guise of hatred, it, it, that's just an extra law. Uh, uh, fair wage acts, e equal pay acts, all these things are, are superfluous laws, in my opinion. So when you start to look at these laws and how they pile up to essentially do the same task, and then throw in uh, what I assume all of us on this uh, show would agree to, 
is no victim, no crime. There shouldn't be anything like as vice crimes, you know, whatever. Uh, There shouldn't be anti-sex work crimes or anti-gambling or anything like that. Um, uh, Everyone should be left to their own devices and to decide what's best for them. So, like, when it comes to that size and scope, uh, yes, I think the law plays a big part of it, even if it's well-intentioned. And this is where uh, I think non-libertarians tend to, uh, well, what's wrong with women getting paid the same as men? Well, what's wrong with uh, preventing speech that is hateful in nature? And and I think there's a lot of Americans today, like using the free speech, for example, we have to protect people against hurtful words. There have to be laws to enforce pronouns and things of that nature. Without even speaking to whether I agree with the whole, you know, whatever these words are supposed to represent, um, the fact that you're codifying speech to some extent uh, is is horrific to me. But that just also expands the size and scope of government because now government is getting into your thoughts. They're getting into your speech, right. which as an American, I can't for the life of me, and I'll put it on your younger generation, I, I don't understand how the younger generation – can stand for this. In my day, it was the the lefties, the liberals, the Democrats who stood up for free speech and who said everything should be allowed. You know, uh, marching Nazis in Skokie, uh, pornography. These were all defended by the old ACLU, Mm -hmm. the old Democrats, who are now the biggest transgressors of free speech, in my opinion. Well, I almost uh, feel like it's not unique to the left. To the to the uh, left, I mean, the right is yeah. also on a crusade against free speech now too. I mean, look at sure. like their efforts to repeal Section Two Thirty, and a lot of the efforts that Trump's pushed for have been. He's definitely has a hard time with people saying things he disagrees with. Um, but yeah, I think that's a really good point. Hate speech is free speech, um, which is I think something we all agree on this call. When I say that, I mean if you. Uh, if you if you have if you want to be able to as Jordan Peterson used to say if you want to be able to think you have to risk be offensive, yes. uh, free speech that doesn't protect offensive speech, isn't free speech. It doesn't actually work. The whole purpose of free speech is to protect the most offensive and egregious speech because without that, we can't challenge each other's ideas. Um, and the real question that gets open, and this is the same question when you when you're talking about hate crimes, for example, is you open the door to have the government decide what your intent is or what Mm. your reasoning is they can't you're you're getting into the thought crime element and anything you leverage against what you might consider hate crime now let's say gen z wants to see people locked up for misusing pronouns incorrectly or something like that that could very easily be weaponized against you in four eight 16 years when say another party takes over and decides that it's hate speech to you know burn an american flag or something Mm. like that right so i I think the only party that's actually standing up for free speech consistently is the Libertarian Party. Uh, both parties seem to have a really hard time grasping the concept. Agree. Adrian? Yeah, I would I would give a little pushback on what you said, John. Is I'll start off with that really quickly, and then I'll address some stuff later sure. on. But national divorce being a radical idea, it, it, that may have been the case once upon a time, but I don't think so anymore. Uh, legacy media has started openly talking about it. I mean, you've had pundits on MSNBC, and I did say legacy media, not mainstream media. I think things like this are mainstream media now. When Joe Rogan has 8 million viewers right. per episode and CNN is struggling to get a million, uh, I think that that's legacy. So I do like to coin that term instead. But legacy media is is now talking about this openly. Hillary Clinton just, uh, I think, less than a year ago was talking about you know this reality that we can't, our philosophies are not, are, are so different now that we can't live in this society where we're trying to force things. I mean, she didn't 
put it this way, obviously, but uh, you know, it's it's become clear, I think, even to the most staunch defenders of the empire and um, and the American way or whatever that that this isn't feasible anymore. So I think that having this conversation, this would be the time to have that conversation because we're more divided now than ever, and I, I think that that's a good thing in a lot of respects. Uh, as far as the <clears throat> As far as the whole, like, um, you know, attributing a different, it's, as far as the language is concerned, right? So murder, uh, hate crime, whatever, that kind of stuff. I always, I do find that interesting. I was a funeral director in San Francisco for a few years, a uh, long, long time ago. And uh, there were sometimes, because it was San Francisco, uh, sometimes the uh, the deceased were murder victims. And sometimes they were, I was primarily in the Mission District, so a lot of Hispanics. Um, it, it was adjacent to the Bayview where a lot of Blacks live. And when there was something that happened that was, you know, it, it wasn't a natural death, we'll say that. It was either some sort of like homicide or manslaughter, whatever the legal term would be for that specific instance. Uh, you never heard families say, well, you know, they, they didn't care why the person, why their loved one died. It was that they died. That was the ultimate result. Like they were unhappy that this person was no longer with them. So it, it's really, it's one of these funny things where we've started to try to hammer down and, and regulate speech to make sure that we get the intended end that we want. And we see this all the way across the board. I remember back when I was at university, uh, that's when social justice became a huge thing. And I was a philosophy major. And it always really irritated me, this term social justice, because it all, I asked one time when they, I saw someone putting up a poster about social justice and stuff. And I said, and this was, I mean, late, you know, uh, late 2000s, early 2000s, uh, 2010s and stuff. And I said, what, like, what is social justice? How is that different than regular justice? This is just a subset of justice. Like justice is justice. Aristotle talks about, you know, justice in and of itself. And now we have like environmental justice and we have like all this. So now it's become the slippery slope fallacy is real, uh, but it's not a fallacy as much as people want to believe that it is. It sets a precedent for other stuff and it really just gets to the point of absurdity. And it's more about punishment for doing something that's ultimately wrong, but for reasons that you deem worse than other reasons. Right. And this is why we have like hate crimes. Like, does it really matter if you're ascribing this crime to someone and that they should be penalized even worse. Like they either deserve this consequence because they just murdered somebody or they just, you know, inflicted violence upon somebody or they don't. The The intent there really doesn't matter as much as the end result, uh, but right. it's a really good way to spin a narrative and, and, and do something that ultimately, again, is your end. You want to achieve your end. So you're going to manipulate language however you want. And it, it is just really funny. And it, it's going to be interesting to see how, how much further this carries on, uh, you know, in the next five, 10 years or whatever the case might be, if right. we're here where we are now. Well, it is getting progressively worse because I think to me, the key is to detach uh, crimes of morality versus uh, what lawyers might say, malamens say, uh, say, I think is the Latin phrase where wrong in and of itself. And those are things we could all agree on rape, murder, uh, rape, murder, theft, uh, uh, assault. These these are things that everyone recognizes as crimes. Speeding tickets, helmet laws, uh, mislabeling, mis, uh, uh, misgendering, uh, speech laws. These these things. Uh, gambling, sex work. These are these are crimes of morality. They're, they're, meaning that there's no real victim other than someone says you shouldn't be doing this. If we can extricate that from the law, which I believe me, I understand is a is a tall order. I think you solve a lot of different problems. 
first of all, a lot of things that are illegal become legal, uh, which means there's no need to enforce it, which means you cut down the size of policing, the size of the legislature, the regulations. And I think government retracts if we can do that one thing. I don't know if it's possible in our lifetimes, certainly not mine. Uh, but uh, if, if I think if we can do that at some point, we'll see government naturally shrink because there's just less for it to to look over and to regulate. They can focus on protecting its the citizenry, uh, providing uh, courts for adjudication of disputes peaceably, things of that nature. So um, I think that's how we retract it. Uh, so um, anyway, uh, good, great conversation. Uh, the next most important thing on issues important to libertarians, economic freedom. And I'll, I'll throw taxation in here, even though it's also listed, but for purposes of uh, expediency. Uh, I think, Adrian, we can agree that libertarians are all for uh, less regulation, lower taxes. Uh, or no taxes. Or no taxes. Uh, licensing should be a thing of the past. Um Go for, uh, please, why don't you tell me what you feel is the most achievable thing out of all these things that we can do to achieve more economic freedom uh, for the average everyday citizen? I, I mean, I think licensing is is probably the most realistic one. I mean, the fact that we don't truly really have economic liberty. I mean, you have to, all the red tape that you have to go through to start a business uh, because you don't want to work under someone's thumb. And you have this particular skill set, which you could expand and grow. And if I want to provide a service to either of you, I now have to go get a license and pay X amount of fees. There's a waiting time and whatever. Now, it's easier in some industries than it is in others. But I mean, that that's the easiest way to do it is to just get rid of. I mean, it, it's absurd that my barber had to go to like <laughs> to call it to, to barber college and, and get this license. And he has to pay however many thousands of dollars. I, I think here in California, if I remember him saying it's it's a couple thousand dollars at least to renew his license every year right. and stuff. And it's like, if I went to him, if he just came up to me and said, hey, I'd like to cut your hair and I want to give it a go. And I, I don't like how he cut my hair. Uh, okay, I can just go to someone else. Why do we have to have this sort of, why does he have to have this this a, this green light from the government to do that? I think that the, the easiest way that we could achieve a, an actual free market, which we've never had here, uh, and eliminate crony capitalism is by not in um, by not enabling this kind of a system where people get rich. I mean, who gets rich off these licensing things like schools that develop just for the sole purpose of issuing these licenses and doing that? That's probably the most realistic thing because um, I don't think uh, that would be a good start to everything else. But I mean, ultimately, I would. Uh, I would like to see more, but I would settle for that. And I think that you could see an economy flourish and have people that have particular skill sets flourish and, uh, you know, achieve more of an economic, a sustainable economic liberty for them and their families, if that were at least to be whittled down significantly, if not just abolished altogether. But Adrian, surely you don't mean that we should get rid of medical licensing, for example, or licenses for lawyers. Like, what would be your libertarian argument for that? Like, surely we can't have quacks running around selling uh, elixirs and whatnot to cure all, all sorts of ailments, should we? Um, I mean, <laughs> depends on the elixir. But uh, no, right. I mean, I, th I think this this is something that goes all the way across the board because it doesn't ever stop somewhere. I mean, obviously, you would want a medical professional that you know is qualified to do X, Y, or Z. But there are a lot of people who have had their licenses pulled as a result of just not agreeing with the FDA or the AMA or whatever. We saw this during the government's response to COVID, right? Um, mm -hmm. We're seeing this now with 
doctors that are speaking out against the mutilation of children uh, here in California. So this is one of those things where it, it, it could start, I'm sure that some of these things are started with the best of intentions, but ultimately no one either sees or cares about the ramifications that I could like that I could end up having ultimately. And it's, I mean, if I hear from you, John, that you have this doctor that's really great with XYZ, this is their specialty, and I have this medical condition, I'm I'm gonna probably do my research and give it a go. It becomes incumbent on us to go and seek these medical professionals, see if what they're saying makes sense and get second, third, fourth opinions if need be, and then carry, you know, carry on as we see fit. But uh, I mean, licensing is not a determination of competence in any of those fields. And certainly how many of us have actually looked up our doctor's license, you know, at any given point. Right. I never have. I've looked up my doctor for sure, but I have never looked up their licensing to see if it's current. Um, If they, if they try to, I guess maybe next time, if they try to give me some sort of elixir or uh, they're doing some sort of apothecary stuff, then maybe I'll, I'll look a little bit more closely, but uh, I don't think that's particularly relevant for me. Fair enough. Joshua. Yeah. On the liber- so I think occupational licensing is a big one. Um, now I don't know if I go so far as to say we should abolish like medical licenses, but I do think that Adrian touched on a good point. You don't necessarily need the government to be the institution that uh, oversees right. licensing. You could have private groups that issue licenses. Like the AMA, company. for example. Yeah, right? exactly. There are plenty of other examples of licensing being done by associations um, and it's a private engagement. And then you as a consumer can say, I'm, I'm going to choose to go to this doctor because I trust this organization that licensed them rather than the government that licensed them. And it's a lot more of a voluntary sure. and it's also, uh, op- it's a lot more of a voluntary uh, relationship there. And it's also, uh, again, better for economic mobility because you don't have the government getting rich off right. these people. You have an association that has, uh, you know, economic influences um, and interests that drive their decision making. Um, but occupational licensing is huge. I mean, in Tennessee, you have, to, for example, you have to, you used to have, have a license to braid hair. So, I mean, we don't even need to talk about medical licenses. Let's just talk about the basic things. Do I need to have a license to walk a dog? No. Right here? No. I mean, there's like really simple stuff that's nonsense that we do at the state and federal level that we should abolish like yesterday. Um, But I think another thing that really is an impact to people's economic mobility is their ability to access affordable housing. And I know Adrian lives with this in California because it's California. Um, and now Tennessee is a little bit better at this, but we're still pretty bad, especially like I'm in Nashville metro area. You go to downtown Nashville, try to find housing. It's very expensive. Um, so I think that you uh, libertarian solution on the zoning side by reducing strict, uh, relaxing zoning, in some cases abolishing single family zoning, for example, there's a lot of innovations there that can uh, allow property owners to follow market signals. I think it was Brian Kaplan who was actually here in Nashville giving a speech the other day, and he said there's, you know, there's very few industries in the world that are completely disjointed from the market, and the government has basically artificially disjointed housing from the market, from market factors, through zoning. So you can't just address, hey, I can sell 100 houses to these people at a reduced cost. I can't feasibly do that unless I go lobby the government to allow it to happen. So that is a situation where the government gets in the way of people's ability to live comfortably and in many cases even have a home because they can't afford it um, or live. I, I honestly don't know. I honestly don't know what Joshua was talking about. California has the lowest <laughs> uh, homelessness rate in the country. Uh, I've never <laughs> seen a homeless person here living in the Bay Area uh, almost, you know, more than half of my life. I don't think I've ever seen a homeless oh, person. So that yeah. might just be a Tennessee problem. I think the only place I've ever seen somebody, uh, homeless people openly smoking crack in a, in a circle in the street was San Francisco. It's a scary place to be. Dude. Yeah. That, uh, but yes. Okay. So th- I think those are two things that are quick. And then just two more quick or two or three more quick sure. things. In, uh, income tax. 
I think we, we should abolish the income tax. Now, I'm not the kind of person that thinks we could just abolish all taxes. And, you know, I'm not on the anarchist side. I'm on the minarchist side. So I think there has to be some sort of institute, you know, model there. But I, I do think that you could abolish the income tax. Tennessee is a constitutional amendment against the income tax. And they rely on consumption-based taxes, which I think are a little bit more voluntary. I think there's ways that you need to, you know, create consumption taxes so they don't hurt poor people, like, say, taxing their food at high levels, you know, those kind of things. You have to explore those dynamics. But I think getting rid of the income tax is a good place to start. And then overall, we already talked about just broad deregulation, making it easier for people to start a business, making it harder, you know, easier for people, less hoops that people have to jump through to actually get ahead. And then I think another thing that libertarians should talk more about is just international cooperation and free trade, because when you really do pursue an environment where you can trade openly and freely without tariffs or or restrictions it drives down costs i mean again it's it might be might be a more politically uh you know helpful solution for you to say i'm going to create a bunch of jobs in florida growing bananas for example and employ a bunch of people but it but in reality it's far cheaper to do it in an environment where that's you know built for that to scale or has the infrastructure for that i think milton freeman had a whole example about how the whole banana thing was something he uh, he mentioned in one of his talks back in the 80s um, so free trade, I think, also drives down costs, and that allows people to save money on goods and services and raw materials sure. that can then they can <clears throat> then in, uh, invest in different areas. So all those things together, I think, are a libertarian solution. But there's there's a lot more, I'm sure. Sure, and, and when you look at it, I think um, a couple of things. First of all, there is a gangsterism to government. Uh, yeah. You guys were talking about housing. I'll tell you what I went through in New York, which obviously is a you know one of the lefty uh, blue states, is. Uh, the state of New York actually cha- charges a VIG for the privilege of borrowing money to buy a house. So they actually have a mortgage tax of 1%. So when you get a mortgage, it's bad enough you're going into the bank. You have to pay 1% of your mortgage to the state. So they're, I think they're the only state in the union that actually that charges you like New York. for the privilege of borrowing money, you know, which is uh, you know insane when you think about it, right? Make, and then you, also you need to stop talking taxes. about that. You need to stop yeah, talking right. about that, John. If any California, if any California official hears you say that, they're going to jump oh. on that for a thing. You're, uh, yeah. you're giving people, you're giving California ideas that we don't need. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then the other thing would be, I do think the open trade, even with countries that have tariffs against U.S. companies or U.S. goods, I think one of the worst things uh, you guys were giving props to Trump appropriately on some issues, but one of the worst things he ever did was heighten the importance of trade deficits. Yeah. Um, the, you know, like the trade deficit uh, is a bad thing. I mean, it's just in, no, yeah. like Justin Amash has the greatest example. I don't know if he pinched it from someone else. He goes, I have a trade deficit with my grocery store. I constantly buy stuff from them. They haven't bought a damn thing from me. Right. So that's a trade imbalance. Uh, but it's one that you favor because, you know, it helps out your life. Uh, Pre COVID, when I had an actual studio before Zooming and everything, uh, that studio was basically built on the backs of uh, Chinese goods. You know, you go order it overseas. It's like literally a third the cost of products made elsewhere. And it allowed a small businessman like me to build a fully functional studio, right? That's like just a concrete example. Uh, I couldn't care less if an American company can equally sell products in China. And and John, uh, one of the things I think is an actually powerful libertarian argument here, because it was, I think this came up in like 2017, 2018, around the the steel tariffs. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things, first and foremost, I think Trump did more to hurt the, the cause of free trade than like any president in yes, at least the last 20 years, like really did a, a huge number on that. And that was one of his things he, he failed on epically. But one of the narratives that I hear from national conservatives all the time is, oh, we have to tariff uh, China because China is subsidizing 
their raw materials. So China's subsidizing their steel, and we can't compete with that. So we have to tariff it because it's not, it's not fair. It's a trade balance. But in, when you really f address that claim, what you're basically saying is the Chinese government is spending their money that, to subsidize and lower the price of steel for us, and that's somehow a bad thing? I can use right. Chinese taxpayer – I could use Chinese <laughs> government revenue to offset the cost of steel – for domestic production, like right. you're telling me that's a bad thing. Like they're bankrupting themselves to make steel cheaper for us. And I, I get the, 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 the back and forth on that would be like, you know, it could reduce capacity in the United States and we then we're too reliant. And I think you could address that, but I don't think on its face, this claim that there's subs, you know, like other countries subsidizing their production is somehow bad for us. I think it's actually a good thing. And yeah, that's the the point you were making. Well, was it who was it? Was it Lord George who said uh, tariffs accomplish in peacetime what enemies try to accomplish during war sure. with blockades and whatnot? Yeah. It's the same function, right? So uh, that's an interesting thing on uh, economic freedom. Okay, uh, let's uh, speed this up a little bit. The final issue I want to touch on is individual and civil liberties. Um, where do we stand on that? What's the? Uh, I'll cut to the quick a little bit here, uh, Adrian. What's the most egregious offense against individual and civil liberties that libertarians should be concerned about? Democracy. Democracy itself. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, this is I, I'm an anarchist because my rights aren't up for a vote, uh, a discussion, much less a vote. Right. And you have the tyranny of the majority here. We're experiencing that every day. Uh, mm -hmm. it, that's I, I think that that's the biggest threat. So it's really funny when uh, I always have a chuckle when the the old the rallying cry from either party mostly the left right now is that this is an attack on democracy good we shouldn't have it <laughs> this is something that that severely impedes my ability to live a free life and i don't want if this is what democracy is i i want nothing to do with it this isn't it, it just doesn't make sense why should 51 percent of people rule over 49 percent of people why can't those 49 percent do what they want and the 51 percent do what they want and we just call it a day Right. Um, so, yeah, I, I didn't mean that to be a cheeky response, but I, I, I really do see democracy as being the ultimate uh, impediment to personal liberty. So is it democracy itself or is it that it's democracy to the end of uh, subjugating the minority that you object to? I think it's the fact that we were conscripted into this without any sort of say. So we signed this apparent, I, apparently I signed some sort of contract where this is something that has to be done. I, I don't remember. I, I know I have a copy of most of the documents that I've ever signed. I don't remember signing this. So that that's kind of my issue with that is if we had, a, again, a voluntary system and you, know, you said that you're a minarchist, I think Joshua mentioned that he is too. That's fine. I don't that we can have an, anarch, uh, an anarchist society and we can have a minarchist society. And if you want to form some sort of night watch type of small government in whatever area you live, that's not you're agreeing to these terms. You understand right. what you're agreeing to and any sort of change or amendment to that initial contract then is, uh, you know, is, is up to, to debate and for you to determine. And if you decide that there's a change that's up that you don't want to partake in anymore, well, we'll wel welcome you into the anarchist community. That's absolutely right. fine. But the fact that we are living under this social contract that we think that now we're beholden to despite not having ever agreed to it is absurd. It, it's kind of like the, I, I know Joshua touched on this earlier with the taxes situation that you could incorporate, you know, taxes. It, they don't have to be fully abolished, but uh, maybe there's a, a way in which that could work where if you think that you're getting some sort of benefit out of something and you want to pay into something on a regular basis, whether it be monthly or annually, okay, go with God, have fun with that yeah. and see how it works. I don't have insurance because I use uh, CrowdHealth 
So that's that's kind of how that works. So I pay into a system where if I do need some sort of medical treatment or something, then I have a community of people that have willingly given money into this into this medical pool that I can pull from. And then I also get emails when someone is requesting to make a withdrawal for some sort of surgery or procedure that they might need. And I have the ability to say, I don't want my money going toward that because I don't think it's serious or I don't really care. or I want it for me. And they keep track of your generosity, whether you've withdrawn your money from this particular from this particular ask. And I, I think that's a perfect system. I mean, that is the most libertarian system and that could work all the way across the board. I, I don't know why it has to be uh, specific to this particular thing. Great. Joshua? Yeah, I don't, I don't, I definitely don't think I'd agree that democracy is the biggest. Did you say it was the, uh, you were talking specifically the context of civil liberties, John? Uh, like what yes, is the biggest yeah. threat to civil liberties? Yeah, I don't think I would make that claim. I, I personally don't think we live in a democratic system. I think we live in a, like an oligarchy oligarchic system run by these two parties that have kind of hijacked politics. We have actually democratic system and libertarians like Adrian would have a lot more of an influence. And like myself, we would probably be able to get 15, 20% of the, uh, the actual, uh, Congress, but that's a whole nother story. Um, I think that if I'm talking about the th the major threats of civil liberties are centered around prohibition. And the reason I think prohibition is probably the biggest threat is because it's created the largest prison population in the entire mm. world per capita. We have more people in prison than China and Russia per capita. So I think prohibition in and of itself is basically a, an institution created by the government in order to criminalize peaceful people. We talked about no victim, no crime. It's prohibition stands antithetical to that. It basically says, hey, well, if you decide to put something in your body that the government doesn't like, we can then take you, throw you in a cage, take your kids away from you, destroy your livelihood. And I think that's an egregious thing. And I think it's also been weaponized in a very racist way against minority communities disproportionately. It's uh, people on the left talk about systemic racism all the time. I think the clearest example of systemic racism is in the drug war and the way the drug war has been enforced against minorities versus white people. It's been an absolute travesty to see. Um, and then I think related to that is stuff like qualified immunity. I mean, if you have, we have, a, we have you talk about the gang effect, we have law enforcement in the United States do effectively operate as a gang. I mean, that's basically what they are, as a legal gang. They have legal protection under qualified immunity. They could break the law, commit, commit really egregious crimes, and then right. face no repercussion for it because they're immune according to the law. That's a huge problem. Um, and that it really just creates a cycle of abuse, and it doesn't create any accountability. So I think ending that is uh, the first step to accountability, and then ending prohibition would do a lot to curtail that. And then the third thing is civil forfeiture, civil asset forfeiture. I can't think of anything more anti-American than civil for than civil forfeiture. I mean, for people that don't know, I mean, it's the process by which if the government thinks that you use property in the commission of a crime. And not it, not used it for a crime, meaning the commission of a crime. So let's say you went and did a drug deal and you drove your car there. They they suspect that you did that. Then through civil forfeiture, they can legally seize your asset. They charge the asset, and then you have to petition to get it back. They don't even have to. Uh, they don't have to convict you of a crime. Um, they don't even have to really arrest you. They can just take it. And this is not just for property. It's for cash. Right. It could be for your house. And some people's lost their houses for this. And it's all on a suspicion that you used it for a crime, not any proof. Not actual um, conviction, right? Correct. It's just we right. think you did it, right? Yeah, I can't think of anything more egregious than that. Um, You're right. That's legalized robbery. So you add those three things together, and I think you've got a really bad you know, picture for civil liberties. And if you're going to talk about like another thing that maybe is not um, as omnipresent, I mean, it's omnipresent, but a lot of people don't think about it, is domestic surveillance. Mm. We in the United States, uh, we have the Fourth Amendment. And according to the Fourth Amendment, we're, we have a right to privacy unless, you, unless a court can prove that 
um, they have the reasonable suspicion to take that away from you. And uh, the U.S. government has completely walked around that and through the Bush administration, perpetrated by every, every, every party since 2001, the Patriot Act, and the NSA has been domestically spying on the American public without any oversight and without any sort of warrant. I mean, they have this fake right. FISA court that they use to get warrants, but it's, it's a rubber stamp, right? It's like 99.9% approval rating for all the ones right. that go through that court. So that's a huge issue. That one is not as – it doesn't affect you as much because you don't think about it, but it's happening every day, and that's a huge problem. So – on that note, I would like to say just a quick shout out to the FBI agent that monitors me on a regular basis. Um, <laughs> and I like to always, I call him uh, FBI Special Agent Steve, even though I know it's NSA because I know it probably really <laughs> irks him. But I think that Joshua, I, I think, so all the things that Joshua said are correct. But I think the ultimate thing is, I mean, we don't have to say democracy because we really don't live in a democracy really but it's it's government is the crux of all these issues so we we vote for these people we put them in the office and that's that's the first step to getting all of these law these people are the ones that write the laws these people are the ones that enforce the laws or you know hire the people the police officers that enforce the laws that are the literal boot right um the thin blue line or whatever so this right. is the problem so this is why i think that government as a whole is the biggest threat to personal liberty because all of the things that joshua described right now are symptoms of this ultimate root cause which is the government none of these things would exist if the government if the government didn't right so that, that that's ultimately what at least that's how i see it but everything that joshua said is correct i just see these all as symptoms of a greater issue yeah, it makes sense. And one more thing, John, before I hand it back to sure. you. The, the only thing I would say is that I don't think you're wrong. I mean, they're, they're definitely tied to the government. The government's the institution that, um, that enforces these things and, and makes them real in many cases. I think where the major difference is going to come between, say, the people in the CLC camp and the Mises camp is it's basically the age-old minarchist versus anarchist argument. Um, and I think that that to, to play the, the advocate for the minarchist argument in that case, it would be basically be saying, like, when you get rid of the government, those things don't necessarily stop. They just happen through different, you know, mediums and vehicles. So, like, you might have a private institution doing some sort of similar kind of arresting or law enforcement type situation. You might have roving gangs of you know violent, you know, violent uh, criminals that you know have well, no. Well, the. The Pinkertons would be an example of that at the turn of the uh, 20th century, right? Like they were a private security force that ran amok. Right. So and, uh, they, they were often used to bust strikes, for example, right? They, yeah. You would hire the Pinkertons. They would come in, beat the crap out of the, uh, the union organizers or whatever in clear violation of the law. But in essence, they were the law. So uh, I get your point, Joshua. Like at that, at that stage, you're replacing government thugs for private thugs. Yeah, and so I, I get to hire like, different government or you get to hire different private thugs. Well, that, that would, that would the be the counter argument. Thugs. Yes, yeah. that would be the counter argument, right? Theoretically, but I think that's the whole idea. If we had a democratic system, then we could have some sort of mechanism for consensus over who, uh, how those th institutions operate. Whereas if you have a private organization, there's actually less mechanisms for oversight on those things. But we could actually have an entire show dedicated to this. Yes. <laughs> And, and, this, is, this is an interesting one. For sure. and, and I've already taken notes on sequels for this episode. <laughs> uh, so I want to, you guys are great uh, conversationalists when it comes to this stuff. Okay. In the interest of time, uh, let's move on to the presidential candidates uh, and we'll get some quick thoughts on them. So right now there are five candidates, five gentlemen who have declared that they're running for uh, the presidential nomination of the libertarian party. They are Jacob Hornberger, uh, who also uh, ran uh, the last go-round in 2020, Mike Termott, uh, Lars Mapstead, Chase Oliver, 
and Joshua Rodriguez so far. And there's speculation, obviously, for somebody like a Justin Amash or a Dave Smith even to possibly enter the race. But we'll leave them out of it because they haven't actually declared just now. So I'm going to go through each one of these gentlemen uh, one by one. And I want each of you to tell me one pro and one con uh, for each gentleman and give you your thoughts. So starting with uh, Joshua, Jacob Hornberger, one pro, one con. Uh, one of the things I really like about Jacob is he is unapologetic on his immigration stance. So he is very much like what I think. Open is borders. The, yeah, yeah, open borders. He's he's really, really good on that. Um, and I think that uh, that's unique with somebody from his kind of, I, I'd say from his like looking at the typical audience that I would expect to be interested in Jacob Hornberger, I think that might actually be kind of controversial among that audience. So I've, I've, I've been happy to see him take that <laughs> stance. Um, you know, I don't necessarily have a con for Jacob. I... Uh, I think Jacob, you know, may not be the best communicator for the party. I think he, uh, and I don't want to go after him too hard because I've met him and I think he's a really uh, decent person. But I, I think that he, um, he, he may have a hard time kind of resonating with most major voters and the way that he frames a lot of things. He seems like he's very adept at talking to libertarians about libertarian issues, but I don't know if he's really ready to go talk to the public and frame the libertarian public. values to the public. That'd be my criticism of him. Sure. So for, yeah, so I would say I, I, I would just I would probably take the inverse position. I, I think that his messaging is really solid. And when he wants to focus on this, I do like that he's unapologetic and that he will uh, sometimes see it's a little bit harder than he should on some things. But uh, I, I think that his biggest downfall is the open borders situation. Um, but ironically, uh, just because I mean, we they exist and we have to live within this framework. As Milton Friedman said, you can either have open borders or a welfare state, but you can't have both. And as long as the welfare state exists, you really can't do that. So that is probably the thing that I disagree with him on the most. Uh, these arbitrary lines are unfortunately a reality that we have. And this is where we separate the philosophy from the reality and what we can do. And I have thoughts on how the immigration thing will work being Mexican myself and having had, mm -hmm. you know, Spanish as my first language and two Mexican parents. But uh, I think that that's his biggest, I, that's the biggest thing to overcome. I think people hear open borders and they immediately hear leftism screaming in one ear and that's going to be really hard for for people to just naturally overcome yeah and that's an interesting i wouldn't have expected that from uh, an anarchist necessarily uh but the way you framed it. it yeah the way you framed it makes sense though if you have a welfare state you can't really have open borders. you should check out oh, the study from cato because they actually showed that um that immigrants add more to the economy than they take out but that's also right. another debate whole another conversation yeah you're right. absolutely right david beer we had him on last week and he had a great position on that all right, let's move on now. Mike, uh, to the guys who also were in the most recent debate, we'll put up the link on YouTube for the most recent debate uh, that Larry Sharp uh, hosted. Uh, Mike Termott, uh, now he's a former police officer. He's run for Congress in Florida uh, at the last special election. Uh, I bet Mike, I, I, I think out of all the candidates, he resonates with me personally the most, but I'd love to hear what you guys have to say. Let's start out with Adrian. What do you think of Mr. Termott? One pro, one con. I haven't had the ability to meet him yet, but just based on, um, I do like that he's taking this very seriously and that he's committed to this. I mean, uh, just last year, I believe he came to California and toured, I think he started from the north, and by, by which I mean Sacramento, I think is the furthest north he went, then he made his way down and visited, I think he was here for about a week, uh, and I know that he's visited right. a lot of state affiliates and, and promoted the message. So I do appreciate his commitment and willing to go anywhere and talk and uh, hopefully he's willing to come to California for our annual convention. I think the biggest downside for Mike Termont is the the police officer shtick. Every time I hear him say that it's a public service, it just makes me cringe. And I know that it makes every libertarian cringe. And 
I, I just don't see uh, the authority. I, I, I don't think that most libertarians, even if you agree that some of them are good, you know, to paraphrase Trump, some of them are good people. Um, it doesn't change the reality that they are the enforcement arm of the state. And as we talked about earlier with speeding tickets, helmets, they're the first to do that. But living here in the Bay Area, I know that I, I've seen them turn away. I've seen SFPD see a guy, you know, uh, defecating somewhere or smoking crack or do it or harassing someone or about to harass someone or robbing places. And they're the first to just turn the police car around and go somewhere else. But they're the first to issue a ticket for something that is nonviolent, right? But they stay away from all the violent stuff. So that I think that's his biggest uh, detriment is I see it, just calling them. I, I could I could listen to the argument or stomach it a little bit more if he didn't refer to them as public as, as public servants or you know their institution as a public service. I think it's a disservice, but I do also understand that he's a former police officer, so uh, I I can kind of understand a little bit of a bias there and where he's coming from. Yeah, when I interviewed him, he actually had to me a very moving story of, about being a cop because he became a cop late in life. I think in his early forties, he. After spending a, a career as an Austrian economist and uh, of that age, so it's an, if nothing else, I agree with you. It, it is an interesting, though, uh, a career he's had. Uh, Joshua, Mike Termat. Yeah. Okay. It's so funny to me how this shakes out, and really, I think this has been a really fun conversation for me, Adrian, because I see the the dynamic between the two caucuses. Because I was going to say the exact opposite thing about the police. So it was really funny because I had that in my mind before you said anything. So, um, what I was going to say, the reason I like his the the fact that he has that law enforcement background is because I think it actually, if he frames it correctly, so to Adrian's point, there's ways that he can talk about it that can completely screw this up. But I think that if he frames it correctly, uh, he can say, look, to the public, right, after getting the nomination, he can say, look, I'm a former law enforcement agent. I, get, I saw the negative impacts of the drug war firsthand. I got to live that. I, I have some, some credibility in this conversation because of my uh, career and my background uh, in law enforcement. So I actually think it could work with him. I do agree with you, though. Uh, it could undercut him if he doesn't do his messaging correctly. And to, to be uh, fair, I have not seen every bit of – Mike's statements on how he talks about the police, so I, I can't really comment on that. I just kind of have seen his stuff on Twitter, and I've seen it, the debate. I've also not met him. Um, so that's the positive side, I think. Would, it would be good. The negative side is, uh, I think, around – one of the things that I, I think Mike's on the record saying is that we should recall all COVID vaccines. Um, I'm personally um, not even of the opinion. I think the data speaks for itself. I mean, the COVID vaccine has saved millions of lives and kept – even more people from being hospitalized. And I think it's, a, you know, like if libertarians can look at that, they could say that's a, a triumph of science and a triumph of, you know, the power of capitalism. If you're working together uh, with other organizations to try to create a, a, a pharmaceutical product that saves people's lives in a pinch, I think was an example of, of that. There was a lot of failures, but I think that was an example of a success. And so seeing that from a presidential candidate, I think is going to be problematic. Um, and it's not only, I just think wrong. So I, I think that, um, that would probably be my negative uh, for him. Yeah. And I think as a, as a libertarian, you could easily hold the position of uh, the vaccines were good, but you were anti-mandate. I anti am lockdown. absolutely anti-mandate. Right. Anti I mean, the lockdowns were the right. biggest wealth transfer from small cor corporations to multinational I mean, companies yes. in the history of the world. So, I mean, they were okay. the absolute failure and so were the mandates. But one of the things Mike has gone and said, recall all COVID vaccines, I think it was a tweet right. I saw from him. Yeah. I don't know if that's a very strong libertarian argument. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just out of you guys, if you guys are interested to pimp my own show, uh, Big Questions with Big John, 
I did sit down for almost two hours with Mike and discussed all these issues pretty much in depth. So if you guys are interested in, since you haven't met him, oh, okay. uh, I, I, I personally think he's a great interview. Yeah. Okay. Lars Mapstead. Uh, he's a libertarian activist. He's a lifetime member of the LP and uh, basically an entrepreneur. Uh, we'll start with uh, Joshua this time. What do we think of Lars? Uh, I think Lars's strength, and I haven't seen his filings or his bank account, so I'm just going off of his personal statements, sure. is that he is, a, he is able to self-fund his campaign, and uh, he's shown that. That's actually very important. As Adrian and I know, being state chairs and working in the LP, you have to put a, sometimes your own money on the line in order to do this job. Right. And that is not an exception for uh, for. There's no exception when it comes to presidential candidates, especially early pre-nomination. There's not a lot of money coming in. So his ability to do that, I think, is a good thing, and um, that may give him the edge early on. Um, I think he's, uh, broadly speaking, uh, a pretty uh, well-spoken guy. I don't have much negative to say. I think when I watched the debate, it w some of his statements weren't really inspiring to me. I, I just kind of felt like, to Jacob's point, I just felt like his communication could have been improved. I don't think he was yeah. the strongest communicator out of the bunch. So that's probably a weak negative, but yeah. that's what comes to mind first. Yeah, he also seemed to be focused almost entirely on economic issues, ending the Fed yeah. and, and things. That seemed to be his, his wheelhouse, which is nothing wrong with that. But I could see where, where to your point, Joshua, some messaging issues. Uh, Adrian, Lars Mar of Mapstead. Uh, so his positives, he's a Californian, and I do like the entrepreneurial spirit, the fact that he can fund his own. Again, I, I haven't seen his finances or anything, so I, I'm taking his, his word for um, you know his success in the entrepreneurial world as a businessman. Um, I think his detriments, I, I do agree with Joshua here. I think that his communication is a bit lacking, and you can kind of see that from the website. He just copied and pasted the Libertarian Party platform. Uh, right. that that's he could have just put a link there and saved us, you know, saved some space there and then maybe talked a little bit about his personal views on certain things or what he would do differently. And then uh, I, I don't know if Joshua would agree with this. I would, I would assume that he would. I think my personal biggest gripe is that he is not he has not been involved on the state level or even at the affiliate level. So that that's a problem for me to just throw your hat in the ring for a POTUS nomination from the LP when you haven't really been involved in the party. Uh, that I've seen, at least during my time here. And, and that seems to be a gripe that a lot of uh, Californians have with him. He's a very nice man. I've met him, obviously, being here. But I, I do think that his communication is lacking and his lack of involvement at the state level and at the local level is, is a bit of a problem for me. Yeah, I think it's right. weird to join the LP in 2020, 2021, and then immediately run for president. So I, I definitely would agree with that statement. Um, and again, I don't ding him for it, but I, I think that's definitely yeah. a reasonable question. It may just not be his time yet, that's yeah, all. Sure. Okay, <clears throat> Chase Oliver, let's start with Adrian. Uh, what do we have to say about Mr. Oliver? I think the notoriety is good. Uh, the fact that he was seen as a spoiler candidate for the Georgia race and that he has been uh, he's gotten a lot of press uh, with legacy media and then podcasts and within libertarian circles. Uh, I did get a chance to meet him. He came to the California convention where I was elected chair in February. Uh, he was very nice. Uh, we, we had a very brief conversation. Um, as far as a negative is concerned, I'm not sure that he sometimes I, I think his communication is, is a little he is definitely, I think, the best speaker of of the five of them. But I, I, a bit of an issue with him, I think, is that he that he can come off. I've seen a lot of his stuff. Sometimes he can come off as a bit. It, it's a, it's a common libertarian trap where you come off as a bit condescending. And mm -hmm. I have the answers to this sort of thing. And I can see that turning people off. And libertarians might cheer that on to a certain in a certain respect, but I think that that could be a turnoff uh, in other, you know, on a wider scale. So that's right. what but what I'll say. But as far as I mean, his positions and everything seem solid from everything that I've heard and read on him. Uh, I think that would probably be my only criticism. 
fair enough. Joshua? Uh, yeah, so I I mean, I really like Chase. When I watched the debate, I don't know about you guys, but I felt like there was really only one candidate that kind of felt like he was running for president when you really listened to him. It sounded like he was talking more to the public than a bunch of libertarians. Right. And that's yeah, I got, what I, I got that vibe too. That's, yeah. Yeah, that's what I look for in a candidate because like, if you're sitting there talking libertarian, that, that, that's not, I mean, I, I get it. You're campaigning for that, but you're really campaigning for the presidency. You're not campaigning for the, the coolest libertarian club or whatever. So right. I think he did a great job of that, and I, I just like Chase generally speaking. I think he's really strong on some of the – like really showing the public, you know, like the historical libertarian position on like uh, gay rights and LGBTQ rights. I think he's like phenomenal at that. He's got some very good anecdotes. He's very strong on the anti-war thing. I think he does a really good job of kind of straddling the line between – um, you know, like when people say anti-war, but then they kind of get accused of being a Putin apologist or whatever by the legacy media. Uh, I think he does a good job of kind of like addressing those criticisms, like basically getting around that narrative, uh, which I think is, can be difficult. Uh, so I really like that. Um, and then I think he's got some interesting angles for the climate change stuff. I think he can just speak to the younger generation pretty well. And he's got a history of being able to communicate well um, with his campaign in Georgia. Uh, negatives, I, I don't know if his team's ready for prime time. I mean, seeing some of the stuff that they put out and some of the – I think that they – you know, I, I guess I get it's early, but, uh, you know, I think that he really – if he's going to – if he's going to take the nomination, being prepared for that is important because there was a major ball drop between the nomination uh, with JoJo and um, her pivot to the general election. There was a lag mm -hmm. there, and that actually caused a lot of uh, missed opportunities for libertarians, and I think she and Spike probably are aware of that too, and they, they've talked about that anecdotally. So being aware and having make sure your team's ready to go is a good thing. But I'd say that's also that's a negative, but it's also positive because I think he actually could position himself to win, and 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 do that. But it, he needs to be prepared, and I don't know if he's there yet. So yeah, and he certainly I, has a youthful appeal. I will agree with you on that. Yeah, yeah. that's true. I actually did. Uh, that is a good point. I will just add really quickly. I did get that same vibe that you both got that he was speaking to to the general public versus libertarians where the other ones were. I will say that it kind of made the way that I took it and I interpreted it anyway, is that that's not necessarily a bad thing for the rest of you because you still have to win the nomination, right? These are all candidates. So you have to speak to the base that's going to ultimately right. vote for you at convention and then pivot. So it seems like he's putting the cart before the horse a little bit. Not that that's necessarily a bad thing, but well, I guess we'll find out. Um, but I, I can see both sides of that. And I, I don't think that that's, it'll, I guess it'll just be interesting for the delegates to decide once the time comes. Sure. All right. And finally, we have Joshua Rodriguez, who's a scientist uh, and a nonprofit manager. Uh, Adrian, let's start with you, Joshua Rodriguez. Okay, I I don't know that I can say anything good about him. My only exposure to him was that debate. And uh, there's just a lot of concerning stuff. I mean, I saw the stuff in the chat about his alter. Now, I'm, as I just talked about, I'm no fan of law enforcement. Uh, but the fact that he's not willing to talk about stuff and he kind of sidestepped questions that were very direct. And he didn't just do that with that question, but he did that with a lot where it seems that he just doesn't fully understand and then come to find out he just became a libertarian. He's been what Unity Party and Democrat and some other stuff, and that's all cause for concern. I I, I don't want to be rude about it, but I don't I didn't see a real positive uh, for. He's definitely the weakest of the bunch as far right. as I'm concerned, and he has a lot more. Uh, the the ROI just wouldn't be there. Uh, not that I see right now. A lot more detriment than benefit. Um, I hope right. maybe there is a positive. I I, don't, I guess I could say that the fact that you have a uh, I, I guess his one positive, if, and he kind of alluded to it, and I wish that he hadn't, would be that he's the first he's like, of Hispanic. Color. Yeah, he's a person of color. And it's like, 
as someone that's also a minority and brown, I, that if I had to hang my laurels on that being the only thing, like I didn't run on that for state chair. Well, I so, I also uh, I know. also thought it was hilarious that he mentioned being the first person of color to run. In the right, party and with Larry while Larry Sharp was hosting <laughs> the debate. But, but, I had you know, to, so I, it's I like... did have to just double check. I I replayed that part and I said. Oh, that shows how little he knows about the history of right. the party. And I'm ha- just like, oh, that's a problem. Had he ha- had he said Hispanic, I would have had to do some digging yeah, to see sure. if that was true. Right. But with Larry Sharp seeing there and you saying POC, that's a little, you know. <laughs> he was very nice swap. about it, though. He didn't say anything. He was, he's <laughs> right, a right. very nice man. I love oh, I lo- Larry I lo- Sharp. I, I love Larry Sharp, too. He's a great guy. <laughs> Uh, Joshua, yeah. uh, quickly on Josh, uh, on the other Joshua. Yeah, I don't want to like beat up on him too much, but I agree with almost everything Adrian said. I don't think he was yeah. uh, ready for prime time. I mean, he started off by saying like he wanted to end war and cure cancer, and that was his campaign. I just, <laughs> that came across as like really naive to me, uh, just be honest. And then, and Joe I, Biden already cured cancer. Yeah, so I thought that was the case. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we're gonna run Joe yeah. Biden, and I do think that there's probably negative angle to the identity politics stuff in the LP. I mean, if you are gonna run to the delegates, it's not a strategy to win them right. over they're more per- interested in the minds your your ideas and they are what your skin looks like that's why we're libertarians so i yeah. think um uh yeah i i, I mean I, i'd say positive i like to stance on some of the tech stuff nuclear and his lack of decision you know i don't want to regulate ai but it was all just it just kind of all felt uh yeah really yeah i i kind of got that feeling too and i also had the opportunity to do an in-depth interview with him as well okay good um and and i kind of got that feeling i i think Again, I'm not. I hope I'm not presuming too much. I got the feeling that the Libertarian Party was the latest one for him to try to push what I would consider a humanist position. Like people are in trouble, people have needs. There's climate issues, there's healthcare issues, and maybe if I come in the Libertarian Party, I could provide some solutions. And that's the most positive spin I could put on. Okay. Also, very quickly before we wrap up, I'm putting you guys on the spot. Adrian, of these five, who would you like to see be the nominee? Oof. Um, I mean, any of them would be better than any one that we have. I'm not really sold on any of them. Uh, I think the strongest candidate right now would probably be Chase. Uh, but uh, I, I need to see a little bit more. I, I need to see more from all of them in order to, to be able. Uh, my vote is still very much up in the air. But if I had to pick this, if I had to see who the strongest one of the bunch so far was, probably Chase from what I've seen so far. Fair enough. Joshua, same question. Exact same answer. I'm not personally uh, committed to any candidate, and obviously CLC's not either, but anecdotally, I think Chase is probably the one that's most well-positioned right now to go. If we had to do it tomorrow, I think he'd probably be the best. And and I'll be honest with you, just to show that I'm uh, not uh, bullying you guys, I'll give you my... I I, I would probably pull the lever for uh, Termod at this point. Um, I, I I just think he... like it, And it is close between Oliver and Termod. In my opinion, they're the ones who cut the most... For lack of a better term, presidential figure. They seem to be the ones who are the most serious about it. Uh, not to impugn the others, because uh, especially Lars and you know he does definitely have a, um, a, a, a some nice things. I think he just needs some seasoning, and I think we can't um, overlook that for the general population, right? Like, do these guys look like they could be presidential candidates? Uh, so that's my position. All right, everyone. Uh, let's wrap up by thanking our guest, Mr. Adrian uh, Malagon, who is the uh, he's the chairman of the uh, California LP and the California Mises Caucus. Check out his information on the screen right there. Please visit ca.lp.org for more information. Uh, Adrian, thank you for joining us today. 
Yeah, thanks for having me. I also feel free to welcome. I'm not as active uh, uh, as Joshua on Twitter, but uh, you can follow me sure. on Twitter, Adrian F. Maligon. Uh, I, I sometimes I, I have the occasional good tweet. So excellent. Everybody follow Adrian. Also, Joshua Reed Echo, a board member of the Classical Liberal Caucus at lpclc.org. Joshua, give us uh, your other contact information for people to follow you on Twitter or elsewhere. Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Josh Eckel. If you want to see my other socials, it's joshuaeckel.com. So Joshua, E-A-K-L-E.com. And yeah, um, I look forward to arguing with you on Twitter. I'm sure we'll have fun. I just, I just followed you, Adrian. <laughs> I, I will reciprocate in, uh, in time right now. Sounds good. Man. Excellent. All right, everyone. Thank you for joining us once again for this uh, episode of Free For All. Join us again next time when uh, uh, we'll have some other wonderful guests on to talk about issues related to liberty and libertarianism. Until then, this has been Big John. Bye-bye, y'all. <laughs>